We're looking at a passage in 2 Samuel, uh, in particular 2 Samuel 7. The words will be up on the screen behind me. 2 Samuel chapter 7. Now when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given, given him rest from all his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and I have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me, that your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. All right, good morning. I'm Jeremy, I'm one of the leaders here, and um, we are, yeah, fair way through our series in the Word of God, and uh, if this is your first week, you've come on the week where we're covering the most scripture, but don't, don't stress, that doesn't mean we're going to go for any longer, but it, mean, it, it will mean sort of paying attention, um, because we're going to be covering a lot of ground, um, and it's really telling one story, I mean, the whole point of doing this series is that we believe that the Bible isn't a series of disconnected stories, that actually they tell one story, a unified story that points to Jesus. And so we're going to pick the through line as we go through these stories. And really the one thing to hold on to from all of this that it builds up to and then builds out of is this, that the hope of the kingdom lies with the forever king. The hope of the kingdom lies with the forever king. And this forever king will not disappoint. Disappointment in our heroes is a, a reasonably common human experience. I think the first time this stood out to me was as a kid in primary school. I started playing cricket. I wasn't particularly good at cricket. I was, I was okay at bowling, but I was terrible at batting. I, I don't know if, going back on my, I couldn't actually remember. I'm not sure if I ever survived more than a full over, which is only six deliveries, if you know anything about cricket. I had a top score of five, and that came one afternoon 
because basically four of those runs came from the bowler bowling pretty much a wide that I just pushed on its way and it kept going to the boundary. So I was no good at cricket, but, uh, but there was one particular uh, player that was my hero. And I, was get, I, was, I was actually, I hadn't included his name to protect his identity like he's ever going to hear this talk. Anyway, but um, whatever. I'm going to out him. It was Mark Waugh. And uh, Mark Waugh was my favourite player. So everything I had had to be by the same sponsor that he had. So I had Slazenger gear, top to bottom. It was a weird thing to idolise a, a batter because I couldn't bat to save my wife. But that's how it was, right? He was my hero. So I had everything Slazenger. And at the end of the season, I knew that our team was going to go to a cricket game and he was going to be there. And so I bought one of those. You could buy these little miniature signature bats. And it was, it was, like a, uh, it was the same type of bat that he used. So it was like a Slazenger V500 or whatever they were back then. And, um, and so we all went to the game. Everyone was pumped because after the game, you go out to kind of right near the, the sort of member stand of the SCG and all the players will sort of be sort of hanging around there and they'll sign bats and all this sort of thing. So everyone headed out there because most of the Australian team was on the New South Wales team at that time. And so you were getting pretty much the best players in the world. So everyone went out with their bats and the players were signing out. I was waiting for water to see when he'd come out. And finally he came out. I thought, this is the time. So I sort of made my way towards the front of the group. And he signed two bats and then he legged it. Everyone else was hanging around signing all these kind of bats. I thought, oh, that's all right. Like, he's probably doing something important. Maybe he's got a family to get to. No. He was going to the TAB to play some bets. <laughs> and so at that point, I remember it was that stark. I mean, that's it. I'm done with Mike Wall. That was it. I was completely finished with him for good. And it stood out to me in the moment that, I mean, it seems fickle as a kid, but I'd built it up so much. So I was like, you couldn't spare like five minutes to cut. Like, there weren't that many kids that you couldn't spare five minutes before he had to place a bet on something, which later he got in trouble for a betting scandal, by the way. Just so you know. Just so you know. There's a bit of background to Mike Wall. But I remember just being so let down by him at that point. And that was kind of a minor thing for a kid. But unfortunately, that's a common experience as people grow up. Do you hold up these heroes, and they can let down in pretty minor ways like that, or it can be pretty catastrophic. And part of the reason this is so disappointing is because heroes are connected to hope. It's either a personal hope for our future or a hope for a collective group of people, but we tend to put it on, on heroes. We long for hope as humans. There's been a lot of talk at the moment about how political views are pushing to the extremes. And one social commentator puts it down to this. He was saying, because our culture has become more secular, that is, we've looked for meaning and identity and hope, not in things of God or religion, but moved towards more secular solutions, the politicians have picked up on this. And they've started to make grander and grander promises of the future. And these have become more and more extreme, whether it's an extreme right vision of a nationalist utopia or an extreme left vision of some kind of egalitarian utopia. Politicians are picking up on the idea that people are longing for hope and they can cash in on it. And they're promising more and more extreme views of the future. And with every time they don't deliver, the weight of disappointment falls more and more heavily. People are becoming more cynical about the future and more cynical about politics in general. We long for hope, and yet heroes who put themselves forward as people who can deliver a new future let us down again and again and again. Well, here we're going to see that the Bible, God himself, as he reveals himself through history, has a long history of not disappointing, of remaining faithful to the promises that he promised in writing thousands of years ago that he has come good on and continues to and will in the future. And what we're going to see is that the hope of the kingdom lies with the forever king.
And we're going to see that this hope of the kingdom is building and building and building until we finally see it fully in the forever king. And I'm going to pray that we would see that clearly this morning as we open God's word together. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that we have the privilege to be able to gather here and to hear from your word, to sing songs to you, to encourage one another of the truths of scripture. And we pray that as we open your word, that you would open our eyes to see the glory of your promises, that you are faithful and good, that you are all powerful, that you, when you decide to do something, it will be done. And so, Father, we pray that our hope would not be in human solutions, but in your solution through your forever King. Amen. I don't normally do this at the beginning of the talk, but I'm going to give you a a few dot points as to where we're going. And I tried to get them to kind of, uh, not rhyme, but sort of fit together. You'll, you'll see. So, and so some of the words are a little bit of a, you know, a stretch. But this is, these are kind of the, the, the sort of five movements that we're going to go through today. We're going to go from vagrancy to occupancy. So that just means vagrancy is homelessness. It's, it just doesn't have an E on the end, so I had to go with that. Um, from vagrancy to occupancy. From occupancy to anarchy. From anarchy to monarchy. From monarchy to tyranny. And from tyranny to hope be. <laughs> you could say it that way, I guess. It would be one way. But that's where we're going. And this is kind of the, these, these are the five movements that we're going to travel through as we go from the book of Exodus to then Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges, and Samuel, and then into Kings. We're going to see the people of Israel go from vagrancy, just wandering in the desert, to being in a land, to having complete anarchy, to actually having a monarchy, and to seeing that monarchy fall apart, and then for hope to reign all the more. Because when we're talking about the kingdom, if you've been following through this story from the beginning right through to the end, we'll see that at the beginning in creation, God had a plan. And the the way to kind of describe it, the topic that we're looking at today is the kingdom of God. And the kingdom of God is this. It'll come up on the slide for you. The kingdom of God is when you have God's people in God's place under God's rule. When the, when the Bible talks about the kingdom of God, it's talking about those three things all happening at the same time. And when we started the, the, book, the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, we'll see that we had all three of these things. In Genesis 1, in the Garden of Eden, we have God's people, Adam and Eve. We have God's place, the Garden of Eden, and we have God's rule. They were living rightly under God's good rule. And his plan was that this kingdom was going to cover the earth, that it wouldn't just be a little garden in the corner, but actually as they multiplied and were fruitful and subdued the earth, that this would one day cover all the earth. But no sooner does we have this pattern and this kingdom to where it all falls apart. In sin, we see we lose all three of them. God's people reject God, they reject his rule, and they're kicked out of his place, and the whole thing is lost. But then we come to the story of Abraham. God chooses one guy. There's nothing fancy about him. There's nothing that deserves any merit about him. He's just a guy and God chooses him. And in Genesis 17, 8, God makes him a promise. He says, I will give to you and your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan, for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And so we see in this passage that he's promised these three things. It says, to you and your offspring. So there's going to be a people. He says, I'll give you the land of Canaan. So there's going to be a place. And he says, and I will be their God. So we have God's rule. God is saying, what I started in Genesis 1, right back in the garden, I'm going to bring it about through you, Abraham. 
And so through the whole book of Genesis, we see that God is building a family. He's drawing a people to himself. Though the world was full of sin and rebellion, God is actually starting this project again. And we'll see at the end of the book of Genesis that we actually have a people. Abraham has Isaac. Isaac has Jacob, who is later called Israel, if you're wondering where that name comes from. So he's got two names. It's a bit confusing. And he has 12 sons who later become the tribes of Israel. And at the end of the book, we see that even though they tried, the brothers tried to kill their other brother, that it, God actually brings it about for good, and they end up in the land of Egypt. So they're not in God's place yet, but there is a people that is starting to be gathered. But then we get to the book of Exodus. Now in Exodus, God's people are becoming so numerous that a new pharaoh comes along and he considers them to be a threat. Where once they were a part of, of a thriving Egypt, he now considers them a threat. And so he decides that he will enslave the people. And so they are enslaved for 400 years, but God saves them out of Egypt. He uses a man called Moses, who again is nothing incredible. A guy who's barely even a public speaker, who we're told in scripture has a stammering tongue. And yet he uses this weak and feeble man to rescue a people out from the most powerful man on earth at that time, Pharaoh. And he saves this people. And he brings them out of the land and he gives them, you might have heard of, the Ten Commandments. He gives them a law. This is God's rule. He's saying, this is how you ought to be my people. He says, you've lived as slaves for years, but now you're going to live a different way. And he gives them commands like the Sabbath. I mean, think about how significant that would be for Israel. If you have been slaves for 400 years, that means your great-grandparents, your great-great-great-parents, everyone has been slaves. You haven't had a day off for 400 years. And God says that's not right. And as he brings out his people, he's trying to show them how it is that they're to live. They're to have no other gods. They're to love their neighbor as themselves. And so at the end of the book of Exodus, and then Leviticus, which is just kind of an expanding of the Ten Commandments, we see that we have God's people, and they are under God's rule. They're starting to live under God's rule. And they are just outside the land that he promised to Abraham. It's like it's all ready to happen. They've been told exactly how they're supposed to live. They're just about to enter the promised land. And then what happens? Sin. Moses, before they go into the land, says, all right, I'm going to get 12 scouts. Let's get one from every tribe so everyone's represented. He says, I want you guys to go into this promised land that we're about to enter, that God has promised to us, to our forefathers. And I want you to check it out for us and come back and tell a report. And so the 12 of them go in and they all come back. Two of them... Joshua and Caleb say, it's good. This is exactly what God said. We should take it. God has promised it. It's time now. And the other 10 say, no way. The the people in there are too big. It's too scary. There's no way that we can do this. And the people get riled up and they decide that they're not going to enter the land. And God says, okay, if you're not going to trust me, you won't enter the land. He says, this entire generation will wander the desert for 40 years and I'll start again. And so at the end of the book of Numbers, we are so close and then almost yet so far. And so then, as that generation dies out, Moses dies out with them, and God starts again, and this time he uses Joshua. So one of the scouts who went in, who has now come out. And we see at the end of the book of Numbers that they're preparing to enter the land again. And then what you get is the book of Deuteronomy. If you've ever wondered why it's called Deuteronomy... It just means, so Jute is second, and Nomos is law. So it's just the second giving of the law. It's like a complete reboot. You had Exodus and Leviticus. 
So they get the law, they're told the law, they're about to enter the land, they stuff it. And then so we get Numbers and Deuteronomy. They're told the law a second time. They go through it in extensive detail. So they're building up to go in. And then we get Joshua. And Joshua is like a second Moses. He's kind of pitched in this book as kind of a a, a Moses 2.0. Moses will not be able to enter the land. He dies out with the people who are wandering the desert. But Joshua is kind of set up as his replacement. Now, if you've, if you've not been in Australia for long, you, you may not be familiar with a, a tradition that we have. Uh, every week, we get a new prime minister. It's really exciting. <laughs> and, uh, and every time we get a new prime minister, um, you, you know that it's, the working week has started. But also, there'll be a swearing-in ceremony. And so what will happen is there'll, there'll be a whole sort of you know, uh, ceremony where they've got to you know, sort of give an oath and all this kind of stuff. And the idea is that every single prime minister does this to demonstrate that they're going to be and hold to the same ideas and, and principles as the previous prime minister. The reason they repeat the ceremony over and over again is it's meant to demonstrate that they're occupying the same office. Now, in the Bible, they don't have any ceremonies. But what you'll get when someone passes on an office to another person is you'll get a repeat of their ministry. So Joshua is like a second Moses. And Joshua, like Moses, calls the people to obey the law. He gathers them together before they enter the land. He says, this is the covenant that God has made with you. He sends out spies, like Moses, 12 of them, to head out. And this time they come back with a better report. He parts a river. It's not quite the sea. So I'm sure Moses is like, ah, oh, come here, little guys. That's cute that you parted a river, but you know, come back when you part the Red Sea. But it's meant to, be, it's meant to remind the people... That he's, he's taking the same office as Moses. He's the one who's going to lead them through now. And so he parts the Jordan River before they enter the promised land. And this time in the book of Joshua, they actually do it. And so by the end of the book of Joshua, God's people have stopped wandering. They are now in the promised land. And so we finally have the kingdom of God. God's people in God's place under God's rule. And it feels like, as you read it, you should be able to breathe a sigh of relief. You should be like, oh, it's happened. Now what God promised back in Genesis is finally starting to happen. This is the thing, and it's much bigger now, so of course it's going to continue and expand and, and go across the globe. But then look what happens. The very next book, in the book of Judges, in sentences one, uh, chapter 2, sentences 1 to 3, when we, are, we have just arrived in the land, and we read this. Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I've brought you up from Egypt, and I've brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this that you have done? And so now I say, I will not drive them out before you, but they shall become a thorn in your sides, and their gods will be a snare to you. We were almost there when sin creeps in. They were meant to drive out these people from the lands. The people in this land were sacrificing their children offerings to God. When they went into the land, for any nation who was willing to follow God, they were able to make a treaty with them. But for those who were going to continue in wicked practices, God says, you ought to drive them out of the land fully and completely. And they don't do it, and they disobey God. And he says, because of that, these nations will be a snare to you over and over again. To give you an, uh, as close an illustration of this as I can, 
The world is probably divided into two people, two types of people. Those who finish their courses of antibiotics and those who don't. Now, if you speak to anyone who's a GP, they have love for one group and not much love for the other. Unfortunately, I probably belong to this group over here. But if this is my, this is my, grasp, my weak scientific grasp of, of what's going on, right? You're supposed to... The idea is you, you finish an entire course of antibiotics because it completely destroys that bacteria, so it's no longer a problem, and it, it, you know, it doesn't come back. If you don't, so what normally happens is, and I'm sure some other people in this room are guilty too, is I stop taking the biotics when I start to feel good. And that may or may not be when it's, the job's completely done. But the idea is, if you don't completely wipe out the bacteria, some of them will become resistant to the antibiotics. And the fact that people are doing this in numbers across the world means that we are getting bacteria who are incredibly resistant to antibiotics, right? They become a, a, a spate on uh, humankind. I don't know, I ran out of words there. But anyway, the idea is you need to clear it out completely. It's meant to be all or nothing. And it was the same with Israel. When they went into this land, they were meant to clear it out completely. These people were practicing wicked practices, things that would make even modern people faint knowing what we do across the globe. And yet they don't. And so God says, they're going to be a thorn in your side. Their gods are going to be a snare to you. And so what we see in the book of Judges is a cycle. And this is the cycle. We see Israel sin. We see God judge them by letting their enemies get the upper hand. So they follow after other gods and other nations. And God lets those nations rule over them. Then they cry out to God. And God has mercy and sends them a judge who will rescue them and help them. And then the cycle starts again. Every time they get saved, they fall back into sin, they're judged, they cry out for help, God helps them, and so on and so on. And for this reason, the book of Judges is an incredibly, incredibly violent book. If you sat the, the Bible down in front of Tarantino and said, pick any book, Quentin Tarantino, say any book to write a movie about, he would pick Judges for sure. Because the judges that come up in this book are not judges who wear wigs, they're more like, like tribal chiefs. And the stories of them are incredibly violent. The first three we get are Othniel, Ehud, and Deborah. Ehud plunges a sword, we're told in detail, he plunges a sword into the stomach of a rebel king, and we're told that the fat closes around it as he slumps over the sword. Deborah strikes a tent peg through the head of a rival. It gets very, very gory. But the problem is that as the cycle kind of goes on, not only do the people get worse, but the judges themselves get worse. It's almost as if the pool of people to draw upon is getting worse and worse and worse. That God is having to work with people who are more and more morally compromised. And so Gideon finishes, he's a judge who's raised up to save Israel, and finishes by murdering a bunch of his own people. Jephthah ends up, is raised up to save his people, then makes a vow to God that if he wins a battle, he'll sacrifice his daughter and relates to God like he's one of the gods of the nations around them, who's a false god. Samson is promiscuous and violent and arrogant. He is an absolute moral disaster and finishes his life with one last act of vengeance. As you read the book of of Judges, it just spirals down and down and down until you get to the very end, which is almost hard to stomach. It finishes with an act of sexual violence that is so horrific that even in the book it says, such a thing has never been since the day that the people of Israel came up out of the land of Egypt until this day. The people of Israel, at the end of the book of Judges, are now every bit as bad as the people they were meant to cast out from this land. And the book finishes with this ominous phrase. In Judges 21-25, this is the very last sentence of the book. 
It says, In those days there was no king in Israel. Everyone did what was right in his own eyes. These are God's people in God's place, but they are not living under God's rule. And so we see these two movements so far. We've gone from vagrancy to occupancy. They've gone from wandering the desert to being in the land. Then they've gone from occupancy to complete anarchy. There is no king. Everyone does what is right in his own eyes. This place is almost hell on earth. And it's into this situation that we get Samuel, the last of the judges. There are no more judges after Samuel. He's the last one. And the two books, 1 and 2 Samuel, are named after him because he's kind of the starting point. But they're not written by him, nor do they follow through his story. Really, they're more about David. But Samuel is the one it starts with, and it kicks off from him. And Samuel is the last judge, and the people come to him because his sons are kind of acting as deputy judges in Israel. And his sons are so corrupt that the people are like, we're done with judges. We want a king, and we want a king to be like the nations around us. And so Samuel is worried about this. Because the whole reason Israel got into trouble in the first place was copying the nations around them. So he goes to God and says, the people want a king. They want to be like the nations around them. And God says, give them what they want, but warn them before you do what it will be like. Tell them that this king will rule over them. He'll tax them and take their money from them. He'll use their people for forced labor. Tell them it's not going to be a good thing. And the people hear this. They gather together before Samuel. He gives them this word from God. And they say, we don't care. We want a king anyway. And so the first king that comes through is a king called Saul. And Saul is picked basically because he's tall, handsome, and is a classic alpha. And so people look at him, it's written in there, they, they respond to him because like, this is what a king should, he looks very kingly. This is the kind of guy we should follow. But what God said to them happens. He's a terrible king, he's self-serving and wicked and, and becomes more and more uh, paranoid and angry and violent. And so eventually he disobeys God and God says, I'm going to take the kingship from you and I'm going to give it to another, one who is after my own heart. And so Samuel goes and chooses a little shepherd boy who's the smallest even out of his bunch of brothers. And even as the dad is bringing out the sons, he's bringing them out one by one from most kingly looking to less so. And he kind of gets to the end of the pile and, uh, and Samuel's like, nah, that's, this is, none of these are the ones. He's like, really? I've got like one out the back. It's almost like a shopkeeper when they're like, I've got, like, I've got a seconds good out the back. Do you really want that? He kind of says, yeah, I've got like a shepherd boy in the field. Is that the one? And it's him. It's David, the smallest out of all of them. But yet David demonstrates himself to be someone who is passionate about God. He goes into battle and we hear the famous story of David and Goliath. But oftentimes this story is misinterpreted as mainly being about you know, how God will help us fight our Goliaths in our own lives. That's not at all what, how the story is tracking. What happens is they're in, they're in battle against the Philistines. So what God promised back in Judges comes true. The nations that they didn't drive out continue to war against them and cause trouble. And they're fighting the Philistines and the Philistines send a champion out called Goliath who's an enormous man. And he says, if any one of you can take me down, then the victory is yours. And, and Israel stand there cowering while the Philistines mock their God. And David, who is still just a boy, is incensed by this. He's like, how can you guys stand? You're grown men. How can you stand by and let them mock God? And so he goes out to battle with just a slingshot and defeats him. And that's, from that point on, we see a shift. 
Saul gets increasingly paranoid and jealous of David and desires to kill him. And David becomes more and more steadfast and holds himself with integrity. At several occasions, he has the opportunity to kill Saul and his advisors are telling him, do it, now is the time. God has given him into your hands. And David says, I refuse to lift my hand against God's anointed. And he waits his time patiently. Even though Saul is a train wreck, even though Saul is trying to kill him, David refuses to disobey God. And eventually Saul dies in battle and David becomes king over all Israel. He rules righteously. He drives back the enemies on every side and brings a a relative peace to Israel. And once that's happened, he realizes, hey, it's happened. We're in God's place. We're under God's rule. Uh, We we are God's people. The kingdom of God has arrived. And he decides now is the time to build a permanent place for the tabernacle, a temple for God. And he goes to Nathan the prophet and says, hey, this is what I'm thinking of doing, of building a temple. And Nathan says, I think it's a good idea. And then we get the passage that was read out to us just before we started, 2 Samuel 7, 10 to 16. Look at what it says. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and I will plant them, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares that the Lord will make you a house. And when your days are fulfilled, you will lie down with your fathers. I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. God makes his promise to him. He says to David, no, you're not going to build me a house. The son after you will build a physical temple. But more than that, I'm going to build you a house. I'm going to establish your throne, your line of kingship forever. He says the one after you, your physical son, your your next son is the one who will build a temple but I'm the one who will ensure that your line continues forever. And you notice what he says in there. He says, I I will establish peace forever. I will give my people rest from all their enemies on every side. He says, I'm going to establish this kingdom, God's people and God's place under God's rule for all of time. And David is completely blown away by it. And this surely, if you're reading this as an Israelite, would be the high point where you're like, this is it. We've finally arrived. And just when it seems like it's there, sin enters again and messes with it. We're told that David is at home while the kings go out to war. (laughs) Apparently in those days, war was like football. Like it was a season when everyone goes out to kick it off. I don't know if they have cheer squads or anything like that. But uh, we're just told casually that this is the season in which kings would go out to war. But in this particular year, for whatever reason we're not told, David doesn't go with them and he's at home. He's surveying his kingdom from his rooftop and he sees a woman bathing and he decides that he wants her. And so he sends for his servants to get her and he sleeps with her. Then the news comes back to him that she's fallen pregnant. And so David has a decision to make at this point. He can either do the right thing and come clean about what has happened or he can double down on sin and he decides to double down on sin. He comes up with a plan. He says, I know what I'll do. 
her husband, Uriah, is fighting in battle. I'll get him to come home on, on respite. And when he comes home, he'll do what good husbands and soldiers do. He'll go to his wife, he'll sleep with her, and then he'll think the baby's his, and all will be done and taken care of. He'll go back to battle, and no one will ever know the difference. But it gets worse. Uriah comes back, and he's such a man of integrity that he refuses to go to his own house to rest while his brothers are out in battle fighting and dying for their country. And so he says, I'm not going to take the privilege of, of, you know, of going to my own home. I'm just going to sleep here with the guards, and, uh, and I'll hold fast to my integrity, and I won't take any extra privileges whilst everyone else is out battle. And so he goes back to battle, and again, David has a choice to make. He can either come clean, or he can triple down on sin. And he decides to triple down on sin. He sends a message to Joab, the commander of his forces, and he says, put Uriah on the very front line where the fighting is absolutely the fiercest. Put him right up there where the fighting is ferocious. And when the time is right, pull back the troops and leave him exposed so that he'll die. And he does it, and he orchestrates the death of Uriah. And it's all taken care of, and no one knows the difference, except, of course, God, who saw all of it happen. And so he sends Nathan the prophet back to him to call him out on that. And he confronts David and exposes him in his sin, and David repents and confesses. But much of the damage remains. David's family starts to fall apart. There is all kinds of wickedness and murder that then happens even within David's own family. His own son tries to take the throne from him and kill him. And so there's this blood feud that forms in his own family, and it's a disaster. But just when it's coming unstuck, there's a glimmer of hope. His son Solomon is raised up as king. And when David dies, Solomon becomes king. And the the hopes are high because the promise from 2 Samuel 7 said that this is the king that I'm going to establish forever. This is the king whose throne I will establish and continue through forever. And look at how he starts. In 1 Kings 3, we're told how it is that Solomon starts his reign as king. And it's good. In 1 Kings 3, 3 3-9, it says, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father, only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. And the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night and said, what shall, uh, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness, in righteousness, and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love, and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in the place of David my father. Although I am but a little child, I do not know how to go out or to come in. And your servant is in the midst of your people, whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil. For who is able to govern this, your great people? And you just think, yes. The the king has asked for anything. And every king before has struggled with power and greed and money. And this king says, look, I'm young. And that makes me a bit foolish. I need need understanding so that I can serve your people well. We've got this king who loves God. And his desire as king is just to serve the people and to rule them well. 
What a refreshing thing that would be for our political context, let alone an ancient Near Eastern one. His desire, his one desire is to do that. And so God says, because you have said that, I will establish it. And under Solomon, we see Israel at its absolute peak. Their territory never gets bigger. They never have more peace and prosperity than the time under Solomon. It is the absolute golden era. It's how some people talk about the Howard years, whatever your opinions on that. But this is, as they look at Solomon, when you, if you were to say that to an Israelite, they're like, that was the golden era. David was a king of war. He pushed back all their enemies. Solomon was a king of peace. And with peace always comes prosperity. Because war is costly and it wears people down. And so at this point, their borders are basically established. And this is the golden era for Israel. And it seems like surely this is it. This is the kingdom established. God's people in God's place under God's rule. No more enemies crowding in. And just as it's about to happen, sin creeps in and it falls apart again. In 1 Kings 11, we read this about Solomon. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their God. Solomon clung to these in love. And the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not keep what the Lord commanded. Therefore the Lord said to Solomon, Since this has been your practice and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes that I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and I will give it to your servant. Yet for the sake of David your father, I will not do it now in your days, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom, but I will give to you one tribe to your son. For the sake of David my servant, and for the sake of Jerusalem that I have chosen. Solomon starts so well and ends a moral disaster, taking wives and concubines as as possessions. We're told up to a thousand. And he follows after other gods, and he fails to uphold the covenant, and he breaks God's covenant. God says, for that reason, I'm going to tear the kingdom from you. Right after we got this promise that this kingdom is going to be established forever, Rise, it feels like you can finally take a, a, a breath and relax. The kingdom is about to be torn apart, and it comes true. Solomon has a son called Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is, again, a young king. And he starts his reign very different to his father. All of Israel gather for his inauguration, and they say to him, look, like he's kind of announced as king, and they say to him, look, Solomon made our taxes high because he built the temple. He came good on that promise. And he built infrastructure and all these things, so the taxes were high. We had to work a lot. Can you ease the load a bit? And wisely, Rehoboam says, just give me three days. I'll go away and I'll take counsel, and I'll come back, and you gather here, and I'll tell you my decision. He goes away, and he speaks to his his father's advisors. And they're old, and they're wise, and they're seasoned, and they say to him, listen to the people. Lower their taxes, lower the burden on them, and they will be loyal to you, and they will follow you. And he's like, okay, that's interesting. I'm just going to go ask my mates what they think. And so he gets together, his young, rich, spoiled mates, and you can, it's a very human scene. You can imagine it happening today. He gets together all his rich friends who have wealthy, privileged backgrounds. He's like, all right, um, the old guys say I should take it easy on the people. The people want me to take it easy on them. What should I do? And what do you think they say? They say to him, nah, go back to them and tell them that my pinky 
is thicker than my father's thigh. If he taxed you, I'm going to tax the heck out of you. And he goes to them, and he does. And of course, the people rebel. And a guy called Jeroboam, because apparently everyone's name ended in Boam in that period. But Rehoboam is king in Israel in the south. And Jeroboam is then anointed king for the ten tribes of Israel. And if you're following along on the timeline, we're right here where it splits. They head up north. And from here on in the Bible, when you see the word Israel, it's talking about the ten tribes that have gone up north. And when you see Judah, it's just Judah and Benjamin that are left in the south under Rehoboam's rule and the line of kings that follow through him. But up here, Jeroboam starts, he starts his kingship by doing what? He builds a golden calf. They say that those who don't read history are destined to repeat it. Did he not read what happened back in Exodus? It's the first thing he does. And there is not a single good king after him. They all follow in the sin of Jeroboam until they're destroyed in 722. God warns them and warns them and warns them. He's patient with them for almost 200 years saying, stop, turn back, repent until they are finally wiped out. And the kingdom in the south continues with some good kings and some bad, but it getting worse and worse and worse. Until eventually they're sent into exile as well. And then there is no king and no monarchy. We've gone from anarchy uh, anarchy to monarchy and from monarchy to tyranny. But as I said before, we then go from tyranny to hope. The reason it matters that you read the whole of the Bible together is so that when you come to Matthew, the gospel about Jesus, and you read Matthew chapter 1 as we're about to do, you'll feel the full weight of expectation that should be behind it. The thousand, fifteen hundred years really from Exodus right through of waiting and waiting and waiting for how it is that God is going to establish his king when finally we get to Matthew 1 and we read this. Look at what it says, Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. The promises that were made to Abraham and to David. So all the generations from Abraham to David were 14 generations, and from David to the deportation to Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation to Babylon to the Christ, 14 generations. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. As you read the story of the Bible, as you track it through, as you start in in Genesis with this picture of, of God's kingdom, God's people in God's place under his rule, And you see it almost get there and then fall apart every time as sin tears it asunder time and time again. No matter how close they get, it keeps coming unstuck. And then finally you get to Matthew 1. And what are we told? This is Jesus, the son of David. He's in the line of David, this promised forever king who's going to establish it forever. And what are we told as well? That he will save his people from their sins. That we get a king, finally, who will not fall victim to sin, but will actually not only hold fast to the fear of the Lord and to loving God, but he will actually save others from their sin. Every other king before him has sinned and caused others to sin. And finally, we come to King Jesus, 
who will actually save people from their sin, who not only doesn't sin, but takes, people, takes people's sins away. Jesus himself embodies the kingdom. He is God's people in God's place under God's rule. That's why when he is asked by some religious teachers when the kingdom of God will come, he says the kingdom of God is not coming in ways that can be observed, nor will they say, look, here it is or there, but behold, the kingdom of God is in your midst. Jesus is actually saying to them, I'm, I'm here among you. The kingdom of God is embodied in the very person of Jesus. That Jesus fulfills it. He's the one who completes it and who lives it out. When God's people were faithless, God remains faithful. If you were with us all the way back in Genesis 15, when God made a promise to Abraham, he cut a covenant with him. And if you weren't with us, I'll, I'll summarize the story really quickly. When you cut a covenant in an ancient culture, you would cut animals in half and you'd spread them apart and you'd walk through them. And when you made this covenant, which was stronger than a contract, but that's probably the, the closest modern equivalent we've got, you, you, would, you would walk through the animals as if to say, if I break my part of the deal, may I be like these animals around us, right? It was a, it was a blood covenant. But when God makes the covenant with Abraham... God is the only one who passes through it. He makes the promise that he will establish his kingdom and eventually it is God himself who is torn apart to keep that covenant promise faithful. God himself comes and fulfills Israel's part of the covenant. Jesus walks on earth in perfect righteousness, in perfect obedience to his Father and he does not disappoint. Rather than leading people into sin, he dies in our place for our sin. Rather than using power to benefit just himself, God uses his power to save and serve others. Jesus, when he lays out his model for ministry, says the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, the, the kingdom, the hope of the kingdom lies with this forever king. He's the one who finally lives it out and establishes it forever. And our hope is meant to be in him. The kingdom, God's people and God's place under God's rule starts with Jesus. He's the first fruits. And as he builds his church, we see God bring it together until the final day when he'll establish it forever. And his people will finally have rest. There'll be no more sin or enemies creeping in. It will be God's kingdom forever. And so with this, this has implications. If you're a follower of Jesus, don't you want to be like him? Your king who does not disappoint. We were away with some friends earlier this week, and I asked him, uh, one of my friends, whether there was any role model in his life or anyone he looked up to who he would want to absolutely emulate his life completely. And both of us, in terms of human examples, couldn't, couldn't come up with one. There, wasn't one there, was, there are people that you'd, you'd model your life off in one particular area in sport or career, but, but really very few who across the board, you'd be like, I 100% want to be like them. And yet Jesus was the perfect man and king. I mean, don't you want to be like him? He's tough and never backs down from the truth, and yet he's merciful. He, was, he, was, he had such a presence that soldiers were afraid of him, and yet children felt comfortable to be around him. He met with the most broken and sinful and marginalized people and yet spoke honest home truths without being judgmental. Is there anyone you'd want to be more like than Jesus? Who died for you, who saved you, who rescued you from sin? Our hope is to be in him and if we put it anywhere else, we'll find ourselves sorely disappointed and deeply cynical. 
And if you don't follow him, I'd urge you to know why. The truth is that when it comes to Jesus, he's come once offering forgiveness and peace, that he has died in your place, but he's only to offer it once. When it comes to Jesus, you will either follow him or in the end you will fight him. That when God, when Jesus comes back to establish his kingdom forever, he will judge the living and the dead, and only those who have faith in Jesus will live with him forever. He came declaring the good news that the time is now to repent and turn back and to find salvation in him. And if you haven't, if you're unsure about it, I urge you to get sure. Because hope in this world will not and does not last. And the promise of scripture is that the hope of the kingdom is in the forever king. It would be crazy not to at least find out whether or not there is any truth to that. I'm going to pray that as we understand these things, God would open our hearts and minds to see them clearly. Let's pray. Father God, we praise you that you are the author of this story, that you will establish your kingdom forever, and that we know this to be true and guaranteed because of the life and death and resurrection of Jesus, that he came and lived out and embodied the kingdom of God and came to die for our sin that we might be with you forever. The effects of sin are profound and deep and have ruined humankind. And yet in Jesus, you have made a way back. And you have appointed a day when you will establish it forever. And so we pray until that day that we would, our desire would be to tell as many people as possible and for our hope to be fully and completely in you. And Father, we pray all of this for the sake of your holy name. Amen.